no knock. I, I come from a city. It's the city, the Big Apple, you know? And um, I never had any, any kind of animals, except uh, I, I did have a turtle, which, um, which died. What, what I mean is, I have no rapport with goats. Joel Fleischman from the Big Apple, not knowing about goats, which is kind of funny because now goats are in New York City. I don't know if you know this, Lee, but goats are actually used for conservation grazing and they're going wild in big cities, particularly in the Northwest, but also in New York. And Joel would have seen this if, you know, the television series was filmed today in 2020. But goats are particularly handy in eating invasive plants like blackberries and poison oak. They'll just chow right through it and it's all natural. Interesting. These are, wait, so these are in the city. Yeah, they have like corporate, like companies that are designed <laughs> to do this. They're like called like uh, Rent-A-Goat and they will bring wow. the goat to the place where there's a infestation of plants in these cities and the goats will just eat it away. And I think it's such a smart idea. I think it's so yeah. fascinating. You know, use nature to... Uh, to solve nature's problems, I guess. That makes sense. Yeah, but alas, Joel, they, they, you know, Joel wouldn't have seen this. It's not how they this did things back. in the 90s, I guess. No. <laughs> All right. Well, what are we talking about here, Lee? We're talking about the 1990s CBS series, Northern Exposure. My name is Lee, and this is the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we obviously we overanalyze the TV series, and we try to expand the reach of the show you know, get the word out about the show. This this show seems to be pretty, I don't know, I don't want to say forgotten, but, you know, we always gripe that it's not available on streaming or no one seems to talk about it today. Yeah, I agree. Uh, my name is Charles and I would have to, <laughs> I didn't introduce myself Sorry. right there. This is like uh, the quintessential, I would say almost a boomer-esque television show what? like it seems like the people that most recognize and identify northern exposure are people that are much older than us yes like but they I don't live think, through it yes but i don't think it's just because like it only applies to people of their age i think it's because the show was not made available to future generations yeah yeah yes exactly i should make that distinction yeah i think if it were maybe more popular it was very popular at the time i think if it were may, maybe more popular today like if it were available on streaming for instance i know we keep saying that but I do think that would make a big difference with its, um, I guess, age demographic of the people watching the fans of the show. Yeah. So we overanalyzed the heck out of the television series. Eh, you know, small details, whether the color of the shirt is red or blue or if the <laughs> We do. Yeah, know, we do mention that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that goats are used a lot in this episode, mm -hmm. or at least that one goat, Dizzy. Yeah, Dizzy, I forgot. So he's named Dizzy after the trumpeteer, Dizzy Gillespie? Yeah. You know, it's unfortunate that you only got one goat, though. I don't know if you know anything about goat caretaking. Uh -oh. uh, <laughs> you I seem to have of, done your research. I kind of uh, got into goats uh, a few months ago. Really? I, I think they're really interesting creatures to yeah, have yeah. in a farmland. But goats are really social creatures. They absolutely need another companion with it. And I'm not talking oh. about you being the companion. Like, somebody needs to be with it 24-7 when it's out in the pasture. Huh. Um, they need like 135 acres, I think, of free land in order to live. And it doesn't have to be another goat. I think like a chicken can be fine okay. with it as long as it has another companion. But they need that social activity right there. And Joel isn't really providing the best for all Dizzy. He takes Dizzy on a walk with Ed. You know, I really like that scene. But yeah, for the most part, it seems like Dizzy's just kind of rummaging around Joel's apartment. Or sorry, I guess I should say cabin. 
and uh, just kind of making a mess of things. <laughs> so Joel receives Dizzy as a gift for applying a cortisone shot? That's right, yes. And, and sort of, okay, so to set this up, this is uh, this is the 12th episode of season three. It's called Our Tribe. And yeah, that's the beginning of the episode. Joel is walking into his office. Actually, I have this written down. As he's approaching his office, people are, are sort of leading llamas on leashes to crossing the street. There's like, there's llamas uh, just walking around Sicily. It's the first time we've seen that. Well, I mean, there's dogs walking around on the street. True. It's not, <laughs> it's not far-fetched to have other wildlife going through there. And so he enters his office and he finds a goat chewing up some papers. And yes, it's revealed. Marilyn tells him that it was a gift from Mrs. Noanuck. And that's right. A cortisone cream was applied. Uh, he, he, he says, I didn't cure. It was just a cortisone, you know. Yeah. I wonder if Joel was supposed to eat the goat. Ah, I mean... Well, sounds like you've done some research, Charles. What would you keep a goat around for? I guess goat's milk, perchance, and then maybe, uh, I guess there's the meat, right? Like, what what would you do with a goat? Well, if you were operating like an actual farm and you were keeping it not for companionship, but for, you know, actual purposes, it can definitely be used for milk. It can be used for its fur. Primarily, it's used for grazing. It's just a good animal to have around in the farm. <laughs> but I highly doubt she got it for him for just companionship because of the reasons I listed before. Uh, unless, I mean, Joel's backyard is pretty big. He does live in an Alaskan wilderness. Yeah. But you can't just let the goat <laughs> out there. I think he has the real estate for it, yeah. But I, as far as what you're saying, the companionship... He's not there 24-7, you know. It needs a friend, like you said. <laughs> and later, I think it almost it's almost implied that uh, he's going to get, you know, like, so he does sit down with Miss Noanuck because he intends to return the gift. He says something like, uh, gifts can be returned. It's a time-honored American tradition, you know, like returning the Christmas <laughs> yeah, like present a, that you don't like or something. Yeah, like a white elephant gift exchange. <laughs> right. Um, so he's sitting down with Miss Noanuck and he's, I guess, trying to return the gift. He's very thankful, but I think she almost misreads that. Uh, this is the scene that we played the bite from in, in the beginning of this episode. She almost misreads it as if, you know, maybe she didn't um, thank him enough. The, the goat wasn't enough. So it, it sounds like he's going to get, you know, even more animals to add to his petting zoo. But uh, no, what's happening now is she is adopting him as a member of the tribe. Yeah, I, I think it's really sweet that she's doing that, but I think that it's purposely misleading what they do to him at the end of the episode because <laughs> it seems more like an honorary title of what they're giving him rather than actually adopting him into the tribe and, like, you know, he throws away whatever identity or, like, religious beliefs that he had beforehand. The end of the episode kind of indicates that it's more of a token of appreciation that he have for his doctoral skills. Definitely, yeah. It seems to be more of sort of just um, an honorary title, but I'd say it's it goes a little further than that because I think it, I think the tribe is something of great value to these people. You know, the people that are part of the tribe, it's like family, you know, for sure. But it's just the people you hang out with. You know, everyone's gathered. There's a scene later whenever. Uh, there's just like the whole tribe is hanging out in Joel's office because the brick has been shut down. You know, it's, it's the same as just going somewhere where everyone knows your name, you know, and 
I don't know. It's it's a sense oh, of play family. Play the Cheers theme song. <laughs> yeah, I would play the sound, the the music in the background if it, if only we wouldn't get our pantsuit off. But uh, <laughs> no, no, so, you're right. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is, yeah, it's, it feels feels like it's um she wants to make him a close friend. You know, more than just a title. I mean, that's what it is, basically. Honorary title. What is he called? Uh, Heels with Tools. So that's his uh, tribal name. <laughs> but apart from that title, you know, they have a potluck. Uh, they share food and communion, you know, and, and they're a community. When she gave Joel the goat, that reminded me of a story that I heard about where David Letterman had given Conan O'Brien a horse hmm. as a gift, like a like an actual horse. Was this like a gift on air or is this just like something he did as a friend? It was something he did as a friend. If I remember the story correctly, Conan was about to go on air and then someone knocked on his door and said like, hey, hey, David Letterman has a gift for you outside. And Conan thought it was like, oh my God, he got me like a car. Letterman's <laughs> rich. He's like, he got me something fantastic. And he stepped outside and it was just a horse. Like someone who was just riding the horse was like, all right, this is yours now. And Conan was... Conan freaked out. It's like, I don't have any stable any or anything to how to yeah. take care of this horse. I have no wherewithal on what to do with it. And eventually I think he gave the horse away to no joke. It was like a place in California where they massage and take care of your horse. And it's used for equine treatment for people that want to grow up to take care of horses. So wow. he kind of went to like a horse daycare. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I wonder if, Letterman was actually like a fan of horses or if, if that was more of like a joke that he was trying to share with Conan. It was more of a joke that Letterman revealed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he, revealed, he, okay. he has no, no, like Letterman doesn't, doesn't, doesn't ride, ride horses. horses. No. Not that we know. <laughs> uh, so, okay. One thing I forgot to mention, Miss Noanuk or Mrs. Noanuk is played by the actress Rosetta Pintado, who we've seen before in Northern Exposure. She is one of the members of the tribe in the bingo hall in season two, episode two, the big kiss. So it's like sort of Ed's tribal family. We learned in that episode that Ed didn't really know his parents and he was cared for by different members of the tribe, um, which is really cool that we see this actress returning. However, that kind of counteracts what we've learned in this episode. Ed is uh, supposedly from a different tribe than Mrs. Noanuk. That's what he tells Joel in this episode. Well, what if the bingo hall is shared by multiple tribes? Oh, multiple tribes. That makes sense. Right there. But I guess I can't remember exactly. I don't know if Rosetta Bentado is set up to be one of Ed's tribal family in that scene or if she's simply just present at the bingo hall. Can't remember, but I feel like she's one of the people who is like telling the origin story of Ed because they have so many different origin stories that don't really line up, you know, in that scene. It's kind of the joke of the scene. Yeah, it, it's a possibility she's just privy to the details of Ed's upbringing, but she didn't have to necessarily have to take care of Ed. Right. Like the That's other true. members of his tribe. Very true. Whether or not it's canon, uh, still glad to see a, a recurring cast member here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's the main plot line, I would say, is Joel being indoctrined into being adopted by this tribe. <laughs> but there's a small other minor plot line that's happening that I'm actually a big fan of. Uh, it's Hauling, who's shut down the bar for, quote unquote, floor restructure. Like he's trying to wax it. He's trying to make it 
uh, improved over the years. It's uh-huh. been 10 years since he did so, according to Ruth Ann. But he's actually hiding something from everyone else at the town hall while he closes the brick down for several days. And that itself has other smaller effects. Like Chris goes into a small depression right. because of the brick <laughs> being closed. But it, that's a very minor plot little plot line. line but, uh... Yeah. Uh, but I would say that I actually really like the reveal yeah. of what Hauling is trying to hide. Yeah, th- this is a really cool plotline. I agree. I'm I'm really big fan of the way this episode um, sort of structured itself. So as we were saying, basically most of this episode is just following Joel and seeing his reaction to what it means to join a tribe and the trials that are presented to him and just sort of his journey through there. But there is that sort of secondary plot that is sort of somewhat weaved throughout this episode. But then this episode does something really fascinating, like 30 minutes, 40 minutes in, like close to the end, everything sort of stops and everyone starts up looking at the moon, you know? I definitely want to get there later, but it has a very interesting structure, this episode. Oh, yeah. I I agree. Props to David S.A.L., the uh, the writer of this episode. Has he written any other episodes? Yes, this is a recurring writer. He's going to write more episodes in the future as well. But, you know, this is uh, the writer of one of your favorite episodes, The Russian Flu, in the first season. And then he also wrote Spring Break, which is one of my favorite episodes in season two. I mean, both of those episodes are are great. And he's back at it again with uh, with this episode. Nice. But before we get there, I want to actually talk about just a small little line that happens uh-huh. in this plot line. So Holling closes down the brick for renovations and everyone has to go to a different place in order to get their foods, drinks, yeah. coffee, whatever. And in the morning, they all go to what appears to be like a new location. I can't identify it. Ruth Ann's store? The whole town. Or something else. Is it, is it Ruth Ann's store? It doesn't look like it is. So there's one scene when it's Ruth Ann's store and she's like, I'm not a waiter. If yeah, you want your coffee, scene. you have to, you know, put the, put your change down and grab a cup. And everyone's just hanging out there because the brick is closed. I didn't realize that that was Ruth Ann's store. Yeah. Everything was moved around. I'm used to just seeing the desk and the shelves yeah. lining the goods. I don't know if it's... It's been like like I said, it's been a while since I watched this episode, so I don't know if uh, I'm not remembering the visuals right. Maybe it was photographed at an angle that we haven't seen before, or what might be likely is that she sort of reorganized her her shelving and just the layout of her shop to fit more people. Maybe. Hmm. Okay. Maybe that's what I missed out on. But Joe comes into there and he's buying a cup of coffee and he has to wait in line. And he even says the line. It's been so long since I've seen a line, I've forgotten what one looks like. Well, feast your eyes. And that occurs to me that that would be really true. Like queuing would not be a part of this small town. Like what would they wait in line for other than just coffee, which they ordinarily (laughs) wouldn't have to do because they would just get orders at the brick. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. It's sort of a huge shift in in Sicilian life. Uh, now that the brick is closed, it shows sort of the ramifications. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this about queuing, but there's actually a widely studied phenomenon about waiting in line. Interesting. So basically waiting in line isn't necessarily the length of time that we're waiting on that makes people really mad. It's the anxiety of not knowing what happens while you're waiting in line. Um, There's a famous study that talked about how people used to go into a hotel and they would get really agitated at the long wait for the elevators to come down. 
Well, a psychologist recommended that they put mirrors in the hallway so that people could focus on something while they're waiting for the elevators. And it turns out that that was actually the cure for the problem because once they installed mirrors in the hallway, the complaints dropped down to zero. Also, there's new renovations happening in queuing theory. So if you've ever been to Walmart or just a large retail store, you might see multiple parallel lines, which are basically lots of stops where you can go get checked out at and there's multiple lines. The problem with that though, and I didn't think about this, but it's totally true. It's actually not a good system because what if the line you're waiting in is incredibly slow because someone's trying to check out, I don't know, a hundred different things and the line next to you is going incredibly quickly because each person only has to buy like three things. So it's not really ideal for everyone. So they designed a new queue called the Serpentine Line. And you've probably seen this one too at like Whole Foods or okay. one of the newer yes. stores. It's the one where everyone gets in the same line, but there's multiple tellers so that they can pick up more people as they come out the end of the Serpentine Line. And I think that's a really interesting one to think about and that would have been something that Joel would not see until, you know, the present day that we're living in. So someone told me once that if you're waiting in line, it's always better to transfer to another line. Like some, there's some sort of reasoning behind that. And I, I never tested it or I never really fully believed it. But is there any, is there any validity to that claim? Like if you're in line, you're always better switching to the next lane. Huh. I can see that working and not working because yeah, right? <laughs> let's say it works out and you go to the next line and it's much quicker than the other line. Fantastic. But that's not bound to be true every single time. So let's say you switch to the next line and it's even slower than the line you were just in. So then you you're going to be again, thinking right? to yourself, yeah, well, you can switch again, but what happens if that one's going to take much more time? Like each act of switching, I would imagine if we're, if every queue is about equal when you started off with uh -huh. the act of switching and starting from, you know, middle place to last place in a shorter line still takes a predetermined amount of time. Yeah. So I would say it's mostly just luck if the line that you go to is much quicker. You know, maybe what is actually the lesson here is kind of what you're saying. It's like when you're standing around doing nothing with no ability to take action, that's sort of when you feel the most upset. So the action of switching lines maybe alleviates some of that feeling of, you know, I hate being stuck in a line right now. So even though maybe you might, by switching, you might take longer to get through, you know, the end of the line, at least you're not standing around. Maybe that's the, the Oh, <laughs> no, I think you're actually completely right. That could be a plausible theory. And that theory actually works because Disney and airports actually apply that theory. So I was recently in Florida going to Disney World because my parents wanted to go there and my parents wanted to go there because they're old and that's what old <laughs> people do. They go to Florida. I'm sorry if I offended you if you live in Florida. <laughs> but I went over there and I haven't been to Disney World in I want to say like 12 plus years and they really changed things up in terms of queuing and waiting in line for the rides. First of all, when you go into Disney World, there is uh, a machine that you just put your thumb into and you scan a card and it goes much more quicker. Like just that was a game changer because I thought I was going to spend the morning just waiting in line that immediately I would assume for most people, but for me, that would immediately make everyone start off the day happy that you didn't have to wait in a line. Yeah. Also, when you're waiting in line for the roller coasters or the new attraction, 
they build like a whole world around it. Like while you're waiting in line, like it almost becomes part of the ride. Oh yeah. Like queuing waiting for in line is, is uh, sort of like walking through a museum, you know? Yeah, exactly. So that is a way to distract yourself from the <laughs> fact that you're just waiting in line in airports. They also do a similar theory. So back like in the 1950s, 1960s, I want to say the place where you would go get your baggage, it was actually closer to the terminal gates, but it would take people some amount of time to get the baggage from the plane to the baggage area. Mm -hmm. And people got really upset because they had to wait around and wait for the bag to come zooming out. So they actually designed airports now where the baggage area was far away from the terminal gate. So you had to walk there to go get the bag. It's definitely what it feels like. (laughs) Yeah, it's like they planned it on purpose just so that you had to spend time doing something before you can go get your bags. Less complaints written into the airlines, I guess, you know, saying that uh, it takes too long in baggage claim. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I know I've been on a huge tangent about (laughs) waiting and everything, but what I wanted to relate this all to is that Joe is now returning back to the act of having to wait. And I think it's very interesting that he had to wait in New York, whereas in Alaska, he doesn't have to wait at all. Yeah. Like Things are much more immediate, kind of like returning back to a quote unquote simpler lifestyle, like what Chris was quoting in the episode, how we can go back to a time where it was just our wits in order to survive. Yeah, but you know what's actually kind of crazy about that thought is you're saying how life in a small town, it, it seems like things are feel like there's so much more accessible. There's no waiting in lines or things like that. However, like life in the big city where you're waiting in line all the time, it seems like things are so much more fast paced, even though you're waiting. It's like hurry up and wait sensation. Cause you know, Joel's big hang up about living in Sicily is, I don't know, things are so slow paced and so hard to grasp. And, and even this show is very almost like introspective when you watch it. You know, it's not an immediate uh, explosion or something. Things go very slow in this show. And I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to hit on, but there's something there, right? Huh, yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's just somehow funny that a place like Sicily can have no lines, yet it feels like uh, such a slower pace in life, you know? Hmm, that's a really interesting observation right there. I didn't put two and two together like that. And so, yeah, like we said, the reason for all of this sort of change in lifestyle is because the brick has closed down, which you've already hinted at. This has had sort of a tremendous effect on Chris, who's uh, really got the blues. You know, he's what, what he's reading Emily Dickinson poems on the air and giving a very emotional weather report. He says, cloudy with a chance of rain until later in the week when the brick reopens. <laughs> yeah, he's reading one of my favorite poems. Uh, yeah. Not just by Dickinson, but just a poems of in all general. Time. <laughs> yeah, I felt a funeral in my brain. I've always been a huge fan of the last stanza when she talks about the plank and reason just breaking. Interesting. Yeah, so you can tell there's there's a big sort of lamentation going on here in, in Chris's uh, entire psyche you know, he misses that sense of community, just like stepping somewhere where I, again, we're, we're calling on the cheers theme song, but you know, he wants to go there and, uh, you know, so it shows sort of the value in, in what Joel is about to be inducted into a tribe of his own, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like that's the thing that he is seeking for and why he thinks Joel's so lucky to even have that. Like that's going to be something offered to Chris who is, I guess, always looking for a place to slot in. 
perfectly because he probably never had that when he was a child. Kind of a delinquent, yeah. Yeah, he didn't have a father figure and everything like that. So I think it's a nice parallel between those two. Um, I'm only saddened that in the end, when they're all looking at the moon and they're seeing what they want to see in the moon, Chris doesn't look at the moon. It's only Maurice that looks at the moon. It's like all the other characters. We don't really get Chris's take on it. Uh, That's interesting that you brought that up. I didn't think about that. I mean, of course, whenever the show's sort of like transitioned into moon mode, you know, I I just want to hear what every character (laughs) says, like how they relate to the moon. And it's funny that Chris doesn't have a whole spiel about it. I mean, is it, is he like drunk out of his mind at that point? I can't remember what, what their uh, journey was. Did they get to the bar? Did they just stop? They definitely stopped. Okay. They're at the side of the road and Chris <laughs> is kind of in the backseat, slung over, trying to pass out, I think. <laughs> yeah, but Maurice keeps talking. Yeah, because the brick is, obviously the brick is closed, so they're trying to go to the nearest bar in like Sleep Mute or something. Do you remember what this is? Yeah, Sleep Mute, I think, is the name of the town. Obviously, very far away. The Kicking Mule is the name of the uh, the bar. It's 200 miles away. That's a good bar name right there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so why do you think it is that he doesn't get to um, expound upon his his thoughts, his memories of the moon? You know, I really don't know. I thought about this for a little bit. And the writer, David, he must have done this conscientiously. He must have chosen not to give Chris lines to talk about the moon because every other character talks about it yeah. like maggie talks about it joel talks about it ed talks about it maurice talks about it but not chris and we've watched the deleted scenes you know i mean there's no there's no scene where chris uh talks about the moon i mean sure he talks about it a lot in you know previous episodes i think is it aurora borealis yeah i think it's an aurora borealis that sounds about right yeah because that's the episode that has that song bad moon rising the ccr song but so yeah, maybe maybe David Sal was going to write something, and then he just saw that episode and was like, "I can never write something as good as this." All right, <laughs> he got intimidated by that scene. I mean, maybe he just fell into the Emily Dickinson poem. Like, yeah. maybe his plank and reason broke, and he dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge. That's very true. That's probably what's happening because that 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 does um, that kind of explains it perfectly, Charles. I think. You know, you're describing his um, expression in this scene is, is just sort of like fallen back in the back of the Cadillac and it's kind of with nothing to do, just listening to, to Maurice. He can't really do anything about it. So we're definitely jumping around a lot, but let's kind of carve out the rest of Chris. So there's a scene before this, you know, it's that, I think it's the Emily Dickinson poem scene where he is about to sign off and he mentions like this flesh sacrifice. It's one of the many trials that we're going to talk about uh, that Joel has to endure, I guess, to in, in order to become part of the tribe. And yeah, you've already mentioned the quote that Chris says, uh, sort of his expressing his envy of Joel, like he wishes he could be part of the tribe uh, and that Joel should be excited about it. Yeah, I thought that was a great scene. Let's let's play that clip that, that you were referencing. In the abstract, I can appreciate the whole gestalt of, of the tribal ritual invocation, but I got to tell you, buddy, I am absolutely green with envy. What? You get to go back in time. Back when, when we sat around campfires, lived by our wits, you know, taste life and death directly, not, not secondhand through the trappings of Western civilization. Think about that. 
I happen to enjoy those trappings, Chris, and call me a Philistine, but I also happen to harbor a deep desire to go through life with the same bland, unadorned body I was born with, free of tattoos, scars, or, or, or other forms of self-mutilation. You know, maybe Chris doesn't have to look into the moon because his head's already in the moon. Like, he has such wide, out-of-the-world ideas <laughs> of how yeah. life should be lived. Like, he thinks that, like, oh, like, the trappings of Western civilization, that's what's keeping us in this box. Joel, you're experiencing something that, like, no one else gets to experience. You're, you're, you're one foot out of here. Like, it's going to be great. So maybe he doesn't have to look into the moon for that. Yeah, so you're saying, like, he doesn't, he's not looking at the moon either in search of a vision or in search of a memory or something, you know, like the other characters, uh, because he's, he's a uh, quote unquote already been to the moon. Do you remember uh, earlier in this episode, Mrs. Noanuk says, you know, she's talking with Joel about joining the tribe. He says something like picturing Rabbi Reagan's reaction to this. He encouraged me to continue my religious education. I just, I don't think this is what he had in mind. What's a Rabbi Reagan's? Uh, rabbi Reagan's is, uh, or, or, well, any rabbi for that matter, he's the spiritual leader of my tribe. Y you know, the shaman. Has your Rabbi Reagan's been to the moon? What? Our Rabbi Reagan's has been to the moon. Uh, suggesting, you know, perhaps some sort of extra knowledge, maybe that maybe that Chris has. That's what, that's what I'm trying to draw here. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. And I actually didn't connect the two dots right there. I've forgotten that she had that line that yeah. the elders have already been to the moon, um, obviously spiritually, not, you know, not physically. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of magic in Sicily. Uh, but no, yeah, I guess we're, we can analyze it as a as sort of um, spiritually, as, as sort of a metaphorical sense. And maybe that is an explanation for Chris. I think it could be one. Just like how you can look at the moon and see something and I could see something else. I think, people, you know, we can look at this as one of the reasons why he doesn't look at the moon. But let's focus on Joel and his journey into the tribe. Right. So at first he's, you know, he's trying to return the goat. He doesn't like the idea of joining a tribe. Obviously, his, he's, a, he's Jewish already. So he doesn't want to abandon his own tribe, uh, you know, the Jewish religion. And it takes some convincing. In fact, actually, Marilyn says nothing to him. And that's what really sets him over. He keeps, there's a, a great scene where he's walking down the street with her and asking her, like, when is this silent treatment going to end? What do I have to do? She doesn't respond. And finally, he, I guess, gives in and says, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll join the tribe. Yeah, that's going to be the straw that broke the camel's back is Marilyn's silent treatment. Yeah, so Marilyn tells him, uh, you know, now he has to begin his trials, the first of which is to get rid of all of his belongings. Wouldn't that mean that he would also have to give up the goat? Yeah, you know, I think that question probably crossed my mind the first time I was watching this episode. But uh, when, I just, when I watched it this rewatch, for some reason, I didn't even think about that. That's a good point, though. Uh, does he try to give it to... Ed? Uh, you're right. He does try to pawn it off to Ed, but uh, Ed declines the offer. Yeah, I think it's that Ed, he says like he he has everything that he already wants, so he doesn't he doesn't need the goat. And yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe no one just, just no one wants a goat. It seems like Ed is the only person that really took up that offer of yeah. taking Joel's belongings. <laughs> He's like leaving with bags and bags full of, uh, of uh, I don't know, Joel's stuff. But we do learn that 
uh, I don't remember their names, but I think they list a few different people in town who have, you know, borrowed things like uh, Joel's electric razor or, or things like that, right? Yeah, they do off screen. They take some of Joel's belongings right there. Though they do replace them, but not with equivalent value. Right. And yeah, there's that scene when Ed is returning all his stuff. And it was actually at that point where I was thinking, is is Joel getting pranked right now? Because <laughs> he's he's really getting treated so poorly, right? Like people are giving him junk back. Like he gets a box uh, with just sort of knockoff products and Hollings bowling trophy is like the last thing he pulls out and he really has a mental breakdown. <laughs> yeah, I think that scene's great. That's some good acting from Joel as well. Whenever he just slides down against his cabinet and just starts breaking down because he's really caught in this difficult situation of wanting to appease Maryland and wanting to hold on to his identity and like how far is he willing to go for someone else's happiness? Yeah. And uh, did you bring up this quote already? There's a quote from Chris, right? Yeah. Chris says, sometimes it's hard to avoid the happiness of others when Joel asked Chris why he's even doing this stuff in the first place. Yeah. And I think that's a really eloquent quote. Yeah. You know, I tend to believe that people aren't predisposed to be uh, terrible people. They want to help out their fellow people when given the chance. And that is a demonstration within Joel that he wants to help. I think he has really good intentions, you know, as much as he likes to fuss, especially uh, when he's out, you know, when they're out looking at the moon later, which we'll get to, uh, I'm sure I'll bring it up again, but Joel earnestly really does want to try to, you know, have a vision and, and really understand what's going on here. He's, he's like giving it his best shot. Yeah. And I would say that he sacrificed a lot because he also can't eat. That's also yeah. one of the trials. That's another thing. He's like, uh, he gets to drink uh, like sort of an herbal tribal tea uh, in one of these scenes with Ed. I will say, backpedaling a little bit, uh, yes, I really do love Rob Morrow's acting in this scene. I think he's going a little bit over the top when he has his freak out, but he does really knock it out of the park when he's got his sort of distressed like hands on his head. He, d- he seems to be in that position a lot in this series. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like crouched, That's default position. crouched in like the fetal position, maybe hands on his head. Yeah. There's also a little exchange that I thought was so hilarious and it's kind of hard to explain why, but I think it's just uh, where it falls in the, the dialogue. But it's when Joel is explaining his discomfort to Ed, like he's ex- he says something like, this is what we do in New York. This is what we do to people who welch on their rent. You know, we just throw out all their stuff on the street. But even then, people aren't stealing stuff from them. Uh, you know, this, Joel feels very violated by <laughs> having all of his pro- having to give away all of his property, I guess. But so he's explaining this all to Ed. And, you know, <laughs> I don't think Ed really fully listens because his response is, uh, is that a salad bowl? <laughs> and Joel just says, yeah, but you can also put chips in it. In New York, that's what we do to people who welch on their rent. Only we call it an eviction. Even then, they, they just they throw your stuff out on the street. I mean, people don't steal things from under your nose and expect you to be happy about it. Is that a salad bowl? Yeah, but, I mean, you can also put chips in it. Pretzels? See why not? Hey, Dizzy, come on! You know, he's just not even really paying attention to Joel's <laughs> misfortune. And gosh, for some reason, that was just such a great little um, non sequitur. It's a non sequitur exchange. Oh, no, absolutely. 
Though, yeah, I don't know why you even have to elaborate on that for Ed. It's like, it's a bowl. It can put anything into it. Like, whatever can fit, it, it can do with that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm still chuckling up about that. Uh, so some of the things that Ed takes from Joel's belongings, uh, an Engelbert Humperdinck record, uh, some electronic device. Maybe it's a clock or an alarm I thought it was clock. a clock. Yeah, he, he pulls it out of a... It pulls it off of a, sh- a shelf or something. He says, does off this... Of like the mantelpiece where right. you would put a clock? That makes sense. Yeah, because he doesn't he ask, does this have AA batteries or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it implies, uh, <laughs> it seems to describe a clock. Uh, if anyone has the Blu-ray and can, and can tell us if it's in fact a clock, definitely write in. <laughs> but where are we going next? I like the scene where Joel meets the Council of Elders. Yeah, they want to see Joel, uh, presumably, you know, just see if he's fit. And they give him a gift of bear fur, bear clothes. Bear skin jacket. I think it's pretty funny that Joel, he tries it on and he's um, pretty impressed with how well the jacket fits. But he says, 40 regular, right? (laughs) You know, it's like they they regular. (laughs) Oh, he's not a 40. I I, I don't know measurements. I don't think so. That like Joel looks like he's a pretty small build. Like I would have pegged him for like 36, 38 at most. 40 does sound pretty large now that I think about it, but I I just thought it was funny that I guess he's assuming that the the tribes members know his uh jacket size, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or that they can even you know, you know, I think bearskin is just bearskin. I guess you could tailor it, you know. Well, they got bear jackets, you know, <laughs> membership is pretty high. They got it in different sizes, man. Child sizes too, you know, yeah. <laughs> all, all throughout. And this uh, scene comes sort of in the midst of Joel's trials and it feels like a really nice safe haven. Like they're all normal folk and really kind of like older and, and nice people. They invite him to use the sweat lodge. You know, it, it feels really welcoming. Yeah. They look really modern. Which I guess True. soothes Joel's discomfort. Because maybe in this, at least for me, I was also thinking this. is like, does this mean that Joel has to give up even just modern day luxuries? And, and yeah. yeah. But it seems like, no, you don't need to. Yeah, these like, are normal Sicilians, you know. Mm-hmm. Here's a little something I noticed in this scene. I forget all of the... Uh, the names of the the people that come to visit Joel. I know that the president of the Council of Elders, his name is Henry Morningstar. And then there's another lady there. Her name is Libby. The reason I remember her name is because as they're leaving, Joel shakes each of their hands. Uh, but if you look closely, he totally snubs Libby. Like she goes to shake his hand and he doesn't, he doesn't, he shakes <laughs> everyone else's hand leading up to Libby, but doesn't shake her hand. She just walks out. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that's got to be one of those, like, I don't think that was intentionally written. Yeah. Just no. the way the dominoes fell when they acted out the scene. <laughs> exactly. And they probably <laughs> only had a couple takes or that was the best take to use, you know. So this all comes, I guess, before Joel has to fast. But it's sort of like after he's given away all of his belongings. And he has a really nice little monologue um, that I'd like to include here. I don't think we can play the soundbite because there's some music behind it, but I'll read it out. Joel says, don't get me wrong. I appreciate the principle involved here. It's hard to escape the cult of rampant materialism that pervades the society. And even though I've never considered myself a conspicuous consumer, I must confess I do feel purged and chastened by the whole experience. And yeah, just very 
fanciful writing, you know, very uh, eloquent words uh, and just pretty cool sentiment too. Yeah, I like the sentiment behind it where he's emptying himself, like whatever identity he had beforehand, before he's being adopted by the tribe, it needs to be taken away um, or given away. That's the more eloquent way to say it. Yeah. Uh, he needs to drop all the pretenses of whatever he was before in order to adopt a new mindset. Yeah, it's like he sort of understands that there's problems with the way he lives his life or the way that many people are living their lives. He's like, he recognizes that there's a problem there, but now he actually has the chance to address it, you know, and it's not easy or fun, but at least he can appreciate it, you know? Uh, but this is quickly followed by, you know, the next trial we talked about, he has to fast. So he's, uh, he's drinking that tribal tea for like the, the next day or so. Yeah. So, Right before he's going to be put on for, I guess, the final trial that Ed describes of having a vision, he gets delivered a crap ton of food, like more than what he <laughs> yeah. could eat. Yeah, it looks like lots of um, Tupperware, lots of leftovers. It's so funny because at this point he's starving and uh, <laughs> what does he say? He he just immediately starts opening up the Tupperware and just stuffing his mouth. What is it? No, don't, don't tell me. I'm so hungry. I'm not eating anything. Mm. Mm. Delicious. What is it? Was it bear? Moose? Oh, it's lasagna. It's great. Yeah, like uh, chicken wings, black <laughs> yeah. bean enchilada, like ordinary food. Yeah, it's just like from the potluck. And Ed is also sort of the messenger to deliver Joel's next trial, which is he has to go out. He has to go out to search for a vision, which I want to come back to. But I think let's backpedal a bit. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about uh, Maggie and Holling's storyline from where it starts. So as we said before, we learned that Holling is closing down the brick very soon in order to, uh, he claims, in order to wax the floors, redo the floors. And he sent Shelly off to hang out with her friends. Uh, do we ever see Shelly in this episode? We do. Right at the very end, whenever Joel is being inducted. Right. Okay. So she's at the little ceremony at the end. There is also a deleted scene when Holling is like talking to Shelly on the phone. Uh, but you know, we don't, we don't see her in that, uh, in that scene. So Maggie is in the brick and she seems very energized. Like, I don't know if she's had a lot of coffee this morning, but Ruthann even mentions to her, she says, slow down Maggie, or you'll meet yourself coming this way. Yeah. I've never even heard of that expression before. But Maggie comes in seven years ahead of her time. She's pulling a real Kramer insurance right there. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> She's like dialed to 11. She like slides into it. Like that must have taken yeah. so many takes today. <laughs> like to slide perfectly into there. <laughs> that's so great. But yeah, she's talking about how she's just got, she's hit this really great stride. She's making all these deliveries and she's trying to sort of plan out her day. And she's fascinated by a delivery that she's giving hauling. It's like a long package that's sort of like a tube, you know? And she's curious. I really like the exchange here just because it's so sort of back and forth. She asks, you know, what, what is this? And hauling says, it's a poster. Poster? Nice. What of? What of what? What of it? I mean, what is it of it? It's to hang up on your wall. And yeah, obviously, Holling does not want to, you know, disclose any of this information. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's ever revealed to us at the end. Um, those were just charts, right? Like they, that wasn't a poster? So that's a good guess. You know, it seems like it would be charts, though I think what it actually is, I, th- I can't remember if it's revealed in the episode. I think what it actually is is pieces for the telescope because doesn't Hauling say he had to like refurbish it in a way? Oh, I think that's so. That's really good. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. Though it could be charts too because that's kind of how charts would come, right? Yeah, they would come rolled up like uh, parchments, like a poster. I'm just guessing it's not poster because why would you even need that at all? No, yeah. To, no, yeah, yeah. It's definitely not a poster because uh, we can tell that. I, I think it's clear that Hauling is trying to hide something. Right. And so the rest of the plot line involves Maggie and Hauling, though I, I guess Maggie's involved because she's just concerned for her friend. But I, I guess also that they didn't have anything else for her to do this episode other than to be with Hauling. Yeah, I found it was interesting that she sort of began the episode with this sort of energy. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't really remember if that ever evolves into something next or if that's just kind of like her vibing in this scene. Maybe that was sort of the direction she was given or the just what the writer wanted to put down on paper. But in the following scenes, I think you kind of nailed it. It's more about her concern for hauling. There definitely seems to be something very strange going on. Like she's always knocking on the door, trying to peek inside uh, until... One point when Holling finally does agree to let her in. Yeah, Holling lets her in just for one peek, and then she has to go. And she goes inside, and his, I guess, back room, it's definitely not the main area of the brick, I would say. Right. But it's like a side room of it, and it's just cluttered with equipment and charts and navigational tools in order to help him find a certain star. Yes. So he's got all these star charts. You see a telescope there and he's looking for a star in the Horsehead Nebula. Is it part of Orion or near Orion? Yeah. The Horsehead Nebula is the easternmost star of Orion's belt. So he's looking in this area for a star. I think he calls it CX-15. It's a star that he purchased uh, from what he says from an outfit in Toronto. Does he mention the star registry? Because this is actually it, a thing. It's it's a thing, but it's not really a thing. Yeah. You can't actually buy a star. Like, <laughs> you can pay money to this star registry, one of numerous companies that exist, and it'll be in the registrar that that star has been purchased by you and given a name by you, but it doesn't actually mean anything. It has no real authorization. Uh, it's a total scam, in my oh, opinion. Oh, man. Yeah. That, I mean, I always thought it sounded like a scam. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah, but he even even if it is a scam for this particular plot purpose, he purchases it for her, for this old flame. He doesn't say it's flame. Yeah, so it's this woman, Eleanor. I think he says her name is Eleanor Berry. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, part of the reason why Holling even made it to Alaska. He says he... he came to Alaska because it's closer to the stars. And that was sort of Eleanor's advice. I think it, yes, I think it was a past relationship. I like how Holling describes it, not as carrying a torch for her, but really just pangs for her memory uh, is the way that he describes it. I think it's such a beautiful plot line, or or at least this action. So he's looking for this star, and it's only going to come up at this certain time. 
Otherwise, it's going to fade into obscurity. He'll never be able to find it again. So with the help of the telescope, he's going to look for this star that is the last memory that he has of her. And this is it. And this is the only time that it will get happen. So he needs to look through the telescope as if, as if this is going to be the thing that made it real. Even yeah. though it's an action. Even though it's she's not even here on this earth to be able to see this action. This is all that Holly needs to make it real is this one particular search for the stars. I like it because it's obviously packed with a lot of metaphors and symbolism within it. But I, I find that that's an action that a lot of people will do, even if it's really irrational, because it's the last time that you'll be able to do it. And even if it's completely silly yeah, and has no founding on logic you need to do this in order to come to peace within yourself or in order to have a proper closure with this individual. Yeah, part of what you said actually reminds me a lot of what Joel says later to Ed. It's when they're out looking for Joel's vision. And, you know, we talked about uh, we're going to get into the moon. There's so much moon in this second half of the episode. But um, they're kind of just like staring up, looking at the sky. And (laughs) Joel sort of flat out says, what do you think happens to us when we die? It's just, that's like a pretty heavy question for, you know, CBS comedy series. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that, that's the moneymaker right there. That's, those are the heavy questions that we got to ask ourselves. And I like his response, Joel's response, where he says, we live on in the way people remember us. Yeah, and that's kind of uh, what you're describing uh, that Holling is trying to do with Eleanor. You know, he remembers her and... This is uh, sort of an active form of memory. You know, it's not just thinking about it passively. He's going to make an action out of uh, preserving her memory. And according to Joel, you know, that in his, in his mind is what spirits are. He says, you know, it's not so much spirits. It's like memories, like feelings and images. And uh, Ed just says, oh, no, that sounds like spirits to me. That's basically the same thing. Maybe, but it's different. Who knows? Different name, same concept. Yeah, I think that's really sort of a beautiful musing that's happening in both of these uh, storylines. I do want to bring this up, though. Is it actually plausible that Eleanor would only be viewed once before she fades forever? Like, how does he know that she's going to fade? Does astronomy work like that? (laughs) I took it as a when he meant fade forever, it meant within his own lifetime because Holling's already pretty old. So it could be one of those Halley's Comet situations where it only comes or becomes visible after a long amount of time. I think yeah, like a hundred years or something almost. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty long span of time. Yeah, I didn't know if that's exactly how stars worked, but I'm I'm definitely buying this premise because it's such a beautiful uh, metaphor. And I think it's smart that they don't really focus too much on the science of it because, again, I don't think the science necessarily works like that. I could be wrong. But instead, they really give a huge gravity to uh, sort of this ticking time clock. You know, this is the last time forever. He says before she fades forever. So it's not implied that, you know, this is the last time I will see her before I die. Uh, but the the episode wants you to feel sort of the stakes there. And I think that's smart, even if it's not maybe scientifically accurate. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's smart to not focus on his relationship with Shelley in terms of this. Like, if you strip it all down to parts, it's really about someone that we 
see as strong and as independent is having a very vulnerable moment and is doing something that's irrational. And he needs to do this, which I think I really like that statement that they're trying to put out here with this plotline. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of glad that he does this as a solo endeavor. And that was his whole plan. You know, he closed down the brick because he had to do it alone. I'm glad that Maggie joins him. Uh, but I see what you're saying. However, devil's advocate here, he does have a maybe a throwaway line here or there where he says something like, you know, Shelley would never understand. Like, that's why I had to keep this a secret. But I think there's a really great episode that we've already seen. It's the one where Hauling sort of uh, hides his sort of uh, nefarious bloodline, right? Like he doesn't want to have a child with Shelly because he knows that his bloodline is evil, right? Like all of his relatives were evil. And later Shelly says to him, he's like, you could have told me this. Like, I'm going to figure this out no matter what. We're partners. Like, this is how this works. Just tell me it's not a problem. I'll figure it out one way or the other. So I think this plot line in this episode sort of contradicts that, uh, that scene that I, I really liked in the past episode. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to reconcile that. Huh. No, what you say makes sense. I I like both. <sighs> I'm just trying to play devil's advocate because uh, yeah. I didn't want to steal any uh, power or weight from that scene in the past episode, which I thought was uh, one of the best Hauling and Shelley scenes. I know we don't really talk too much about them or sing their praises, but uh, but I think, I think there's some... Some cool stuff going on. Maybe that's why I like this plotline so much is because it's actually independent of yeah. Shelley. I think I think it's good because of that, but I'm not saying that they can't share the limelight either, you know? No. I would almost prefer to not remember that scene of what you were saying. I know it goes against <laughs> character development and everything, but yeah. I think that seeing despair and seeing something that is inevitably going through someone's fingers and they can't quite grasp it or like they're going to lose it forever is really neat to watch. Yeah, no, it's very relatable. You know, that's what we all fear, you know, so we all connect to it. Yeah. Well, do you want to take this time to talk about sort of the rotation in this episode where we go like character to character, what everyone uh, sees when they see the moon? Yeah. So we talked about this concept before on an earlier episode of Northern Overexposure, but the idea of seeing something in an inanimate object is called pareidolia. And in terms of the moon, it would be called lunar pareidolia. And lots of cultures and civilizations see their own things when they see into the moon. Take Ed, for example. When he looks at the moon, he sees a rabbit. And in Japanese cultures and Korean cultures, they also see a rabbit. Uh, they see a rabbit making mochi with a quarter oh. of messel. Mochi is like the little rice um, sort of ice cream, delectable, doughy thing. Yeah, uh, you can construe it as saying that they're making like, r they're pounding the rice, basically, yeah. okay. uh, with that uh, mortar. So Ed sees that uh, with his own visions of the moon. Maggie sees, when she was younger, she used to imagine the man that she would marry. But now when she looks at the moon, she doesn't really see anything. Yeah, she says she just sees the moon. And Joel sees this person that's suffering from eczema. Like suffering from acne. <laughs> yeah. He's suffering from something. They called him Pizza Face, not to his face. They called him Mitch to his face. Right. But someone he used to work individual. with. Yeah, right. someone he used to work with. And his is the most, I guess, quote unquote, grounded in reality. Like he's seeing what his memory would first make him resemble. Oh, yeah. To see. He's like actually, yeah, kind of putting a um, physical quality, you know, something that 
an image that you can really see. Whereas Maggie is imagining different characters. Uh, I guess Ed is doing the same thing though. He's like taking an image. He's making another image with like a bunny. Yeah. Uh, Maurice sees a memory. Right. That's mostly. pretty cool. He sees Alan Shepard's, I guess, funny looking feet. Yeah. <laughs> Because those are the feet, I guess, that uh, walked on the moon. And uh, I guess Maurice is sort of sort of feeling some remorse that he never got to walk on the moon. Yeah. Uh, Alan Shepard, for people who don't know, was the first man to go into space. I actually saw a statue of him in the Kennedy Space Center when I went to Cape Canaveral in Florida. You can't miss it. Like, as soon as you walk into there, it's just a giant statue of Alan Shepard. You could even see his suit and all, all that stuff. Nice. That could have been Maurice. That could yeah. have been him. And yeah, I think that kind of wraps up, right? Because we already mentioned Chris doesn't really get to muse about the moon, at least uh, not verbally. Uh, he's just kind of sitting in the back of the truck. Holling also, interestingly, doesn't uh, talk about the moon, but uh, this comes around the same time when uh, he realizes that he uh, not may have, but he, in fact, he missed Eleanor. He's not going to see her. I don't know if he missed it. I, I think he just cannot find it, I thought. Oh, right. Okay, so it's because the condition is too foggy. Is that right? Yeah. So she's there, but he can't see her. Yeah, it, it's not that he missed her because of time management skills. It's because <laughs> there's some sort of external factor that's preventing him from being able to see her. And it's. Uh, that's I think that was the right call. Yeah, it's a very important distinction. Yeah, I think it was the right call for Holling to not see Eleanor. Yeah. For some reason, I think that was the proper thing. Yeah, you know, so this actually reminds me of uh, our, one of our past episodes, Soulmates, when I was kind of thinking about that scene when Maurice could not remember Yongcha, uh, the woman with which he fathered a child, you know? He couldn't remember mm-hmm. this this person. And in the end, there is a sort of a nice sort of... Um, conclusion, you know, where he finally does remember her. And I think it's a nice scene, but for some reason I, I liked that, uh, that, should I say, pang of the heart, you know, that sort of distress, I guess, that Maurice felt and he couldn't really make it right, you know? Yeah, it's similar, a very anticlimactic. It's not that I don't want Holly to be able to see the star because of some issue within himself. I, yeah. I I just like that realistically, a lot of the times you don't get the closure that you want. So right. him not being able to see this is just, it's very realistic. It's, it's more realistic and it sort of shows you that there's still, there's something to be learned, you know, because I think we've talked about this more than once, how oftentimes an episode of this show will, end sort of in an anticlimax or there will be multiple anticlimaxes. And, you know, it's really easy for them. They've been uh, masterfully constructing sort of the structure of the episode to sort of all come together at the end. But then you see that, no, it doesn't actually turn out that way. Instead, let me offer something else, you know, and it's, um, it's not explosive or physical or external. Usually, usually it's very internal, introspective. And, you know, thought-provoking, which is which is something I think we really like to talk about. So it's in this scene where Maggie sort of offers her um, solution. Well, what does she say? She says she's not really gone hauling. She's out there somewhere. You just can't see her. I guess what I'm trying to say is we're alive. We're here now, you and me. 
I don't know where Eleanor is, but it's a beautiful night and I'm glad to be here. And that's what matters. This, now. And that's it. And yeah, it's sort of, it doesn't really give you the closure, but just like, I know we keep talking about past episodes, but uh, goodbye to all that. You know, that's an ending, which is all about closure. And Joel doesn't get any closure, but instead he realizes he just has really cool friends. And that's what's happening here, I think. Yeah, really, it's just the present moment that you're living in. We're here because we're here, because we're here. (laughs) So before we close out this episode, let's finish up with um, Joel's vision trip. We've already sort of started talking about that. But yeah, I think it's so cool that... Joel has his um his guide, I guess, like his vision guide is Ed, who's joining him in the woods. <laughs> yeah, I like that it ended up being Ed right there in order to help lead him to the conclusion that he needs to see. And again, it sort of amounts to a big anticlimax, but again, I've already said I, I love that this episode, sort of in the middle of the episode, changes gears right? You know, it's like all about trials and tribulations and everything that Joel has to get through. And now uh, it's literally just musing, like it's going to each character and Joel and Ed, and they're just kind of hanging out, talking about everything and nothing, you know? That's one of those rare moments where I think it's very appropriate to talk about things that you ordinarily just would not talk about if you were with like a stranger. And I'm not talking about like deeply intimate issues like that, but more of like wishes and wants and, and, uh, uh, perception. They're more appropriate underneath the full moon. Oh yeah. Like in front of a fire or under the full moon, you know, something where it's just, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's like storytelling. It's like sharing and community. I don't know how to describe it. Mm -hmm. And it's the only way that they can see their visions is underneath this, underneath the moon. Right. And again, we, we talked about this earlier in the episode, but I like how open Joel is trying to be. You know, he's not resisting anymore. You know, he had the whole episode to complain, but he's like actively trying to give it a shot. He has a, a quote in here, something like, um, well, you're asking me to believe in something I haven't seen. I mean, in the absence of empirical evidence, I would have to say I'm skeptical. And it's at, you know, right around that moment where, you know, he's just laying down with Ed. We have a two-shot sort of overhead looking at them. They're laying down on the ground, looking up at the sky. And then for a brief second, we get a shot of the stars above them. And there's a shooting star, right? But they don't mention anything. It's like they kind of didn't even notice. And if you're watching at home and if you blink or if you look away, you wouldn't see the shooting star because they don't comment on it at all. I thought that was a pretty cool moment where you're just kind of like, wait, did that just happen? Because the scene continues on. They don't even address it. Uh, But they're talking about trying to see things, not being able to see things. Uh, I thought it was a pretty clever trick. Hmm. Yeah. That's a really interesting uh, thought experiment. The shooting star always exists. There's always shooting stars. But its existence is only real whenever you see it. Like that's the value beyond a shooting star is seeing the shooting star not the act that a star is even doing that in the first place. Them not even seeing or acknowledging the shooting star, does it even exist in that time for them? Right, yeah. No, that's a very great, you know, this is the kind of things that happen. We should just do an episode out uh, under the moon, Charles. We should just like (laughs) lay out the woods. It would probably be really boring. Just like That's a quick way to get murdered. (laughs) 
What do you think murderers just live in every woods? I mean, I'm not saying they don't. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely like a chance. There's a chance. I think we'd be safe, you know. We'd be more likely to be attacked by bears or something. Uh, more likely we would just get yelled at by some farmer to get off his land. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're making a podcast. Can you keep it down? <laughs> so at the end of all this, Ed, you know, says, you know, maybe this is your vision. And Joel's like, uh, wait, what do you mean? You know, this um, Ed's like, yeah, just you and me sitting out in the woods. Maybe this is the vision. And Joel says, you know, well, nothing happened. I didn't see anything. And Ed says, well, maybe we did. So I don't know. It's kind of a non-answer. You know, it's kind of not really giving you anything. But I think what you can take from it is, you know, you just got to get outside of yourself and um, try to think outside the box, kind of be like Chris, you know, you got to walk on the moon, maybe. Yeah, definitely. I think that helps him accept the next day's events. Right, because the next day is uh, his induction into the tribe. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so he's at the town hall, and everyone seems to be there. Shelly's back. Yeah, Everyone is watching Joel, and he's just being lavished with praise. And then he just gets like a little certificate. Uh, It's just a piece of paper, honestly, (laughs) and that's it. Like, like that is him being in the tribe. And it even surprises Joel. He even says like, really? Huh? I don't know why I was getting so worked up about this. Yeah. Like, um, it is set up as sort of this big gathering, sort of a big speech. You know, Joel even has like some cue cards in his hand. And anytime I see that, I'm like, oh, of of course you, you only write out the cue cards so that you can throw them away and just make it up on the fly. (laughs) But no, none of that happens. Uh, Joel has a very brief speech. He says, uh, You know, he says, in the future, when he returns to New York, this is all going to feel like a dream, but at least um, right now, it feels like a good dream, you know? I I think it's Mm -hmm. short and sweet, but yeah, that's, you just described it. That's all that happens, and uh, I just want to say, the only time flesh offering is mentioned is when Chris brings it up earlier. Was that just like a joke that he was playing on Joel? Because no one in the tribe seems to even indicate that there's a trial like that. Hmm. I don't know if that Chris never gets would brought up want again. to pull Joel's leg. It, maybe Chris is just misinformed. Yeah, because Chris does say like he doesn't really know the um, the practices, I guess, of this particular tribe. But it, it's some pretty heavy words just to pull out, you know, if you're not really sure that it's going to happen or if it's not going to happen. Because yeah, that never it's never it's never brought up. He's just hmm. uh, he's just part of the tribe. Well, if we keep to the name of the podcast and we really <laughs> overanalyze that, there maybe is something there. Maybe he did give up a part of his flesh, and the part of the flesh was the mind because he's having those visions. <laughs> Wait, but the mind is not flesh. I guess the brain is. But we're talking mind body. That's too separate, right? I mean, well, who's conjuring up the thoughts? The brain. The brain named itself. It's it's flesh. <laughs> oh, man. This is turning into uh, the Sicily Town Hall, you know, like the semantics <laughs> argument and uh, the body in question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like the Jewish music at the end. Yeah. This is what a wonderful ending shot, too, because I think... Okay, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like a close-up on Joel, right? But then there's all these people surrounding him. Like the frame is filled because everyone's like running up to him, stuffing food on his plate. That's like part of the close-up shot and ruffling his hair. There's like a kid who runs up and like touches him, like ruffles his hair, right? Uh, It's just like uproarious music that you're saying. Is it sort of like the clarinetti, like klezmer style 
music and uh, he's smiling in close up and crazy yeah, madness Maggie is gives happening. Him a kiss. Oh, Maggie kisses him at the end. That's funny. That's great. Yeah, there's just a cacophony of noise and action as Joel moves down the buffet line and everyone's just kind of dogpiling on top of him as Jewish music plays in the background of that scene, indicating that Joel still has his identity of being yeah. Jewish back at home, back in New York. And is that music, it's supposed to, we're supposed to assume that it's actually playing in that in that room, right? It's not just part of like the uh, the soundtrack. Yeah, I took it to mean that it was coming from the room. Like yeah. someone was Playing thoughtful enough to be like, let's play that for Joel. That's also part of who he is. Right, and I, yeah, so exactly. I love how inclusive it is, uh, even though, you know, he's part of his own little tribe now. And before we toss to our guest, there's a great quote that I'd like to get to that I, I think we skipped over. It's when Joel and Ed are walking Dizzy, the goat, and uh, they're just having a little walk and talk conversation. Ed, let me ask you something. What does belonging to your own tribe mean to you? Bingo. Bingo? You mean like bingo? Well, I was raised by the tribe, but since I didn't have parents, I was passed around a lot. Never really thought about it. I mean, belonging to a tribe. I, I belong to the Jewish tribe, so to speak, but I'm also an American, you know? But what does that mean? I mean, <laughs> is there an American tribe? It's more like a, a zillion special interest groups. In my own case, I am a New Yorker. I am a, a Republican, a Knicks fan. Maybe we've outgrown tribes, you know? It's the global village thing. It's telephones, faxes, CNN. I mean, basically, we all belong to the same tribe. That's true. But you can't hang out with five billion people. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a really great quote from the episode. And it really brings the question of, do we want to have our own sect, our own niche within our lives of people that we like to be with? Or are we trying to be all inclusive and include everyone in there? And both are impossible to achieve. You need mm. to have like a global community. You need to go reach across the aisle to see other people from just your own metaphorical tribe. But Ed brings up a reasonable point. It's impossible to identify and relate to 5 billion. Now it's never since seven that episode, billion. like 7 billion people on At the same planet. time, right? Yeah, exactly. Like they're both impossible spectrums to achieve. And I think, uh, well, we were just talking about it, but I think the end of this episode kind of uh, is a perfect marriage of the two, you know, visually and symbolically, you know, visually... Joel is surrounded by his tribe. They're all there physically, you know, cheering him on. And then, you know, the music that they play indicates that he's got other tribes, you know, all around the world. And we all have different tribes that we belong to. Yeah, I think it's mostly trying to demonstrate that every human being is multifaceted and that, you know, we all possess layers and more than one dimension, which is like an obvious lesson. But I still think it's a lesson that is very profound and you need to find ways to express it. And I think this episode does a really good job of showing that. Yeah. Maybe it's an easy lesson to, to preach, but uh, it's something that needs appreciation, right? Like we got to pay respect to that. And uh, I don't know, very universal feeling. It's very well done. Okay. Now let's toss to our guest for this episode. Our guest is Jeanette. She actually is a fan of the podcast, she wrote into us early on uh, to tell us how much she was enjoying our podcast. And she had just 
recently started rewatching the show. So it's sort of this perfect uh, timeline kind of coming together. Uh, but Jeanette is the host of her own podcast called Humanology. She's also been a frequent guest on Digging Six Feet Under, which is another podcast. This one's based on HBO's uh, series Six Feet Under. Uh, but more importantly, she's an active Northern Exposure fan, obviously. And I thought it would be really fitting to sort of uh, reach out to the Northern Exposure fan community and invite you know someone in. You know, this is our tribe, Charles. You're part of the tribe now. You love Northern Exposure now. <laughs> I brainwashed you. <laughs> I feel like you've come a long way from the uh, the beginning of the podcast. I remember I was listening back to an earlier episode where I was like, Charles, I hope you're here next week and you haven't just like left because <laughs> you hate the show. <laughs> no, but I think the whole time you were a pretty good sport. Yeah, I think the television series is growing on me. Um, I, I think I need to finish it though before I can give any giant... <laughs> yes or no by the numbers statement yeah that's what's so beautiful about this podcast is because you never know it's like obviously you have someone who loves the show but then you got like a newcomer so there's always something new to talk about um all right back on track Jeanette is going to tell us what she thought about her latest rewatch of this episode Hi, I'm Jeanette from Northwestern Illinois. I'm a social worker and I love Northern Exposure. So this is my feeling about episode 12 on season three. It's this classic fish out of water story. And so is the entire series of Northern Exposure, fish out of water story. I myself came from Chicago to Northwestern Illinois about 20 years ago. And I can completely relate trying to find my tribe and kind of resisting the, the, uh, rural area I lived in. So Joel is doing that. I won't recap the whole uh, show, but I'm going to talk about my themes. First of all, the the audio is awesome. They played the jazzy New York urban flute in some of the cool spots, but at the end, this last one minute, it was a tight shot of Joel receiving his award and going through the food line. And it was people nurturing him and patting him on the head and kissing his cheek and saying, Joel, congratulations. And it was a tight shot of his huge smile on his face and food and people, his tribe. He was nurtured. So the themes to me are one, um, you know, the richest man has nothing. The richest man is who has nothing is what Marilyn said. And really it was Joel figuring out and reestablishing and surrendering and sacrificing himself to figure out that he is worth something and that his tribe is there for him. And, you know, that's what Maggie said to Holling when they were standing on the roof. She said, there's nothing but here and now. Nothing really matters but here and now. So let's surrender to that. So the other theme to me was nourishing and nurturing each other. Ed nurtured Joel. Uh, Maurice nurtured Chris when he was down because the brick was gone, and the brick usually socialized and nurtured him. And um, Holling and Maggie. Maggie uh, nurtured Holling. And so that's my take. It was a wonderful episode. I absolutely loved it. All right, that was Jeanette with her analysis for the episode. And I think it's really interesting that she mentioned that she's from Northwest Illinois right now, but she came from Chicago. I remember a few summers ago, I drove to Chicago and I was coming in from around that same area. And that place is just filled with just corn and wheat fields. Like it, it's very rural. Yeah, and then okay. suddenly 
boom, you're just in Chicago, like a concrete jungle, which I love. I love the city of Chicago, but it's distinctly different from the rest of Illinois. So that's got to be a drastic shift from where she originally held from and trying to find her tribe in this completely different environment in Northwest Illinois. Yeah, definitely like the fish out of water feeling, which is so strong in this show. There's obviously so many similarities between Joel Fleischman and Jeanette, you know? Uh, And I love that she talked about the effectiveness of that final shot, you know, that we were just talking about, the last shot of the episode. So powerful and the music. Ah, it's so good. Yeah, I also liked her comments about nurture. That was something that we didn't really pick up on. But if we take the meaning of community, it's not just a sense of belonging. It's also the sense of taking care of one another whenever misfortune happens in their lives. Like you rely on another person, you lean on their shoulder. So that happens throughout this entire episode that Jeanette was saying, just various characters just leaning on each other, bringing the sense of community together. Yeah, and I think that's something that we are often talking about when we're talking about Northern exposure, I think that's a great word for it. Nurture. I I think I've always just been saying friendship, like this is such a great encapsulation of what friendship is. But in reality, it's that element of nurturing uh, that Jeanette is pointing out. And there's a scene here that I, I didn't really go that deep into, but it's a perfect example of that. It's this scene when Chris is, he's got some sort of wild energy and he wants to go to a bar. And even though the brick is closed, uh, it's not going to stop him. He's going to go 200 miles. He's going to hop on his Harley, drive 200 miles to, uh, to the nearest bar. But what's so cool about that scene is the start of it is Maurice just walks in uh, and he says, you know, go home, Chris, because Chris has been monologuing to the radio for so long. Um, there's no explanation for why Maurice is there other than he's kind of checking in on Chris and, you know, he doesn't have to be there out of any obligation to the radio station. Nothing's gone wrong on air. He just honestly cares about Chris. He's like, look, you're working too hard, man. Yeah. And he even has that comment where he says, I've seen men with that stare before. They often don't make it back. And Maybe he was able to tell from the tone or just the content of his words, but he could sense that there was something up he needed to go visit. Yeah, exactly. And what I also love about that scene is it doesn't end there. You know, Maurice offers to drive Chris. So it's like, not only do we get to see sort of this nurturing side, but they're about to go on an adventure and it's awesome, you know, (laughs) super exciting. It's like an active path forward. It's not an ending to that plot line. It keeps moving, which is cool. Jeanette also quotes, uh, you know, Marilyn says in this episode, the richest man is the guy who has nothing. And we see that Joel is is really trying to learn this lesson throughout the episode. I mean, he does really go through it. You know, he gives away all of his belongings, you know. But uh, we talked about this earlier. He He's giving it a good, honest try, right? Like he's trying to understand what's wrong with the way he's living his life, you know, or, or maybe the problems, you know, not necessarily what's wrong, but that there's there's a little more to life than just these uh, material belongings, I guess. Yeah, he gives it a sincere effort that he tries to give up everything. And I, maybe I'm just speaking from personal experience, but I think that yeah, a healthy compromise is probably what's needed. Like Chris is wanting to go whole haul. He says, yeah. like, get rid of the Western trappings. Yeah. You need to go back to like, I don't know, like caveman times basically. And 
the tribe that he's being adopted into wants him to give up some of the possessions, but they give him back things of equal value. Right. Like, it's not like they want him to be empty handed right there. So I would say that there is a lot of truth to that statement. You know, eye of the needle, Jesus and the rich young man, these old biblical stories of trying to untether yourself from your original thinking and try to adopt a new way of life. Yeah. And I think you hit it on the head with the idea of sort of compromise. You know, in the end, what's happened is the tribe just gives Joel a piece of paper, you know, but it's important that they still have those crazy traditions of the, of the trials. You know, they're not trying to turn Joel into a caveman, but they realize that these trials are going to teach him a lesson. You know, they don't really have to go too crazy with it, but if they didn't make him do it, he would never have the opportunity to try, you know, to try to understand what it's like to get rid of everything that you own. So that was our take on Jeanette's commentary after she watched the episode. Once again, thank you, Jeanette, for listening to the podcast and for writing in. And if you're listening now and you'd like to write in to the podcast, our email is northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. We tend to check that a lot more frequently than we do the Facebook page. But um, Charles, thanks for potting with me. We got the next episode next week will be number 13 in the third season called Things Become Extinct. Hmm. I'm going to guess that old relationships become permanently ended. I want to say it's metaphorical, not literal. Like I don't think an animal species goes extinct. (laughs) Right. Uh, Hey, I think that's a pretty good guess, but uh, we're going to have to get into that uh, next week. Charles, see ya. All right. See you next week, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jeanette for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>